On February 8, 1974, the crew of Skylab 4 splashed down after an 84-day mission in space, at the time the longest single spaceflight. So to mark this occasion, we're going to talk about Skylab with the curator of the Apollo collection at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, Dr. Teasel Your Harmony. How you doing? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Threads, Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com forward slash space and things. But right now it's time for episode 179 of the Space and Things podcast. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 179 of the Space and Things podcast. Emily and I are now back from what we decided to call the Space and Things podcast field trip to Washington, D.C. Now, let me tell you, we had a blast and we will be talking about our experiences over a number of episodes over the next month or two, probably. But right now, Emily, what was your highlight of our last week? Oh, God, uh, this is hard. It's like asking almost what's your favorite? Who's your favorite pet? Who's your who do you like the best? (laughs) This is hard. Uh, It was just the entire museum and archives there are just incredible, obviously. I have to mention this because uh, you and Teasel are going to laugh hearing about this. One of the highlights, I would say, <laughs> I was know, seeing... I know um, what's coming. You know what it is. <laughs> in the uh, One World Connected gallery, they have a... Uh, I think it's a very high-fidelity model of ATS-6, which was a uh, sort of a communication satellite launched in 1974. It, it, set, it was Tedris before Tedris was built, basically. It was sort of yeah. the uh, experimental version of that. And uh, I've written about that before, but I'd never seen one, obviously, because there's one in space that we can't see. Holy crap, it's enormous. Like, I was just shaken by the size of this thing. Like, I was like, oh, my God, it's huge. And I think I went into, like, a trance-like state for, like, 15 minutes just freaking out over the presence of this thing in the gallery. Sometimes when I write about things, they're in a book, right? And you see a diagram of the satellite, yada, yada. It looks nice, you know? But you don't really get a sense of how things look and the scale of them until you see them in person. Another example would be in the uh, planetary gallery, there's a Voyager model and it's freaking enormous. I yeah, mean, it's it huge and yeah, it's, it's long and you see the photos of it and stuff, but it doesn't really do, you know, photos are two dimensional. It doesn't really do justice to how big in person some of these things some of these spacecraft are so nor do you get the context do you you don't have context when you see a photo of something in space you've got no concept of how big or small that is because it's not like there's a human being standing next to it or anything else that you can register what it might be like that was a weird sentence no no but you're right like when you see concept art don't really get a sense of the scale of it because it's always kind of you know put far away from a planet but to see that in person to see something i've written about and never really seen. But for some reason, that just blew my mind. I, I think I went in a trance for like 15 minutes. You absolutely did. It was one of the, it was one of the most <laughs> wonderful things I've ever seen. We were walking through one of the exhibits there, which I'm sure we're going to talk about over time. I think it's called The One World Connected. Is that what it was called? 
Yep. I think it's called yeah, that. Yeah, I, one love, connected. I love that gallery, man. It's yeah. really good. They're all good, but that, I was, I loved it. I went in there first and I was like, oh, Emily's going to love it in here. And I was right. And Teasel was showing us around and suddenly Emily looks up and sees, sees this thing and she's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then that was it. We lost her. Like she, she was talking to herself pretty much about, you are, you were talking to yourself about what you were, what you were looking at. And Teaser and I carried on our conversation. I think we were about six levels of conversation past. And then you came back and you were still talking about it. <laughs> and it, I'm fairly yeah. sure you didn't have a clue what we, would, we, what we had mentioned. No, I don't remember what you guys were talking about. I'm so sorry, by the way. I'd like to apologize to you and Teasel because... I flipped out. No, but we both found it very endearing. It was one of those things we were both smiling because it was clear that it meant a lot to you and seeing that was wonderful. And uh, we're going to talk about this um, over the next few weeks about what it's like seeing things uh, and being and, and witnessing other people enjoying uh, museum pieces. But I got to do that a lot over the last few weeks. And that was probably one of my highlights was seeing you enjoy things and, and, and watching your reaction to things as they, as, as, they turned up as we turned yeah. the corner and, and suddenly something was there. We had a great time. We really did. It was one of those yes. really oh my God, l- yeah. life-affirming trips, wasn't it? Where you're like, yes, I'm so happy that we're doing this. Yeah. Obviously, we went to the main Smithsonian Aerospace Museum downtown. We went to NASA HQ where they've got a wonderful library. We'll talk more about that at another time. And we went down to the Advar Hazy uh, Air and Space Museum, which is out of town. It's down down near the airport. Those three, th- as well as just exploring Washington, D.C., went to Arlington Cemetery. Uh, I went over to uh, the, the Washington National Cathedral just because they've got a moon rock in one of the windows. I thought I'd better go and see that. And it's just a wonderful place. It's a really, really wonderful capital city. I've been to a few capital cities and it's probably my favourite. I loved it. And all the elders, yeah. all the space stuff, amazing. But oh, yeah. for me, my highlight was the people. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. I say it a lot about spaceflight. I think the thing I love about spaceflight most is the people, the people involved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is the same thing. The, the people we met, some people we knew beforehand, some people we didn't. And everyone was amazing. We got some amazing insight. We got some amazing experiences. People really were, were generous with us, uh, with their time and other things. Like It was amazing what we got to experience. Oh, yeah. So for me, yeah. everyone, if, you, if you're listening to this and you were part of that, uh, you know who you are, and we thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, we look forward to spending more time with you. I'm sure we'll make that happen at some point. Okay, should we talk Skylab for a change? Yes, we should. <laughs> so this week marks the 50th anniversary of the end of the crewed missions to Skylab, America's first space station. Now, over the last year, we've covered this quite a lot, but we haven't really talked too much about that final mission. It was 84 days in space for the crew of Jerry Carr, Bill Pogue, and Ed Gibson. And at the time, they became record holders for the longest single space flight and the total time in space for a single person. They obviously shared it. Yes. Skylab 4, uh, obviously, what, as what Dave just said, uh, broke all the endurance records, uh, longevity records in space. Uh, including those of the uh, Soviet Union at the time, spent 84 days, over, a little over 84 days in space, a few hours. Also, another thing notable about this mission is I believe they had over 1,200 orbits of Earth. Wow. Uh, and they also spent, uh, I want to say, nearly 1,600 hours doing experiments up there, which was more than the first and the second crew combined. Wow. So that's a pretty big deal. Uh, they got a lot done. 
Uh, some of the scientific highlights of Skylab 4 involved uh, observing comet Kohutek around uh, in the days around Christmas 1973. Uh, they went and actually did an EVA to um, go see this. And another thing uh, that's also a uh, scientific highlight was they witnessed the birth of a solar flare uh, to its crest. And they were able to record this for the first time, I believe, ever. Wow. So got some good images from it. Um, another thing is Ed Gibson, who is a solar physicist by trade, did an exercise to test out what it would be like on a space shuttle crew. I want to say he spent the whole night at the ATM just doing uh, exercises and observing the sun. So that's another thing. It sort of brought us from the Apollo period to the shuttle period. It's sort of a bridge to that. So that's another thing very important to mention. Another thing also is, I believe at the time they held the EVA record for the most EVA, most EVAs and the most EVA hours as well. So yeah, that that mission was just full of uh, amazing highlights. When they landed, like I said, they had become more efficient than the second crew, which was called the Super Crew. Another thing uh, that's notable about this crew as well is when they returned, they were in better physical shape than the previous two crews because... The first two crews had learned, okay, if you want to come back to Earth and be able to walk, okay, you need to exercise a lot, okay. right? So the third crew actually, they took this- uh, Seriously. They took this to heart. Yeah, they took it very seriously and they did more exercise. So when they got back to Earth, they were in really, they were in pretty good shape. They were able to pretty much go to their normal routines when they came back with a few exceptions, but they, they were able to, you know, walk and function pretty well. If I had to summarize it, those are the most notable takeaways from that uh, crew. For sure, for sure. Now, if you're listening and you don't know your acronyms, your space acronyms, there's plenty of people who don't. I don't know that many of them. I have to look them up a lot. EVA is one I know. That's spacewalking. If you heard EVA, you don't know what it is. It's a spacewalk, leaving the spacecraft in your spacesuit and going to do some work outside. We had TDRIS earlier as well, which is the Tracking and Data Relay Satellite System. And this is a collection of satellites which allows us to communicate a lot better than we could back then a lot less blackouts as a result of those and atm is not somewhere you get cash out of it's the apollo telescope mount and we're going to be talking about that a lot later so while emily has just listed all of the most notable aspects of the mission it's not the thing that the mission is most famous for is it emily you missed something out what is that thing oh god um, I don't even want to mention this, man. I think they're most famous for something they didn't do. <laughs> yeah, they are most famous, unfortunately, for something they never did. Um, it's funny because I was staying um at a friend's house this weekend, and they have a uh, an incredible space archive there, and they had the book A House in Space, which sort of helped start this whole mutiny nonsense. But the uh, yeah, the crew is unfortunately probably most known for having a uh, incorrect and inaccurate story about a quote-unquote mutiny that happened during their mission. Basically, what happened was they were overscheduled. They had a ton of experiments, as I've said, on board, and they basically communicated to the ground, hey, this isn't working. You know, we're starting to make mistakes. We're a little overbooked up here. You know, we need to make a better schedule, basically, right? And there was no hostility. There's no fights or anything. This went on for a while. They got a day off. After that happened, it didn't really help any. It didn't help the problem. So basically what happened was Commander Jerry Carr had a 
sort of what he called a seance, but he had a talk with the ground controllers, basically like, this is how we should schedule things from now on. So they put that into place and it worked perfectly. And they did a wonderful job. They got a lot done, et cetera, et cetera. And then in 1976, the book A House in Space comes out, you know, and and really trashes the third crew terribly. And it there's a lot of problems with this book, but really too many for one podcast. <laughs> this book is very problematic, which wow. is sad because the author, Henry S.F. Cooper, is not a bad writer. He's done other books that are great. I'm not trying to take him down as a writer or anything like that. He's done other books that I actually quite enjoy, but this is not one of them. But that book sort of is what started the whole, yeah, they started a a strike and refused to do anything, blah, blah, blah. And over the years, this kind of just snowballed. It's one of, it's like a game of telephone where somebody whispers something to somebody and at the end, it's not remotely true. It's kind of like that, except that happened from a historical perspective of somebody wrote this book and then somebody wrote a study about it, which had some other inaccuracies inaccuracies added in it. And then over the years, it just kind of snowballed to this, oh my God, this one day they went on strike and raged against the machine and refused to talk to anybody, yada, yada. Yeah. It's just one of those things. And I, really only in the last probably 15 years or so has this sort of been put to rest. People, you know, a lot of space historians, including myself, we've worked to debunk the myth because really the, none of this happened as it's been reported. It's been very sensationalized. People love drama, but it's at the expense of three guys who are awesome. You yeah. know, and that's not fair. That is not fair. You're right. It's one of those things where when you look at how it's normally presented, oh, they, the mission control didn't hear from them for a full day. Well, back then that was that wasn't necessarily unusual because you weren't in contact with mission control for the whole time. It's not like now where you've got constant surveillance anyway. There were big big blackout periods. And if the times they weren't in a blackout period, they happened to be working on something else. They weren't necessarily thinking, oh, we must radio down. They had things to do. Or if they didn't have the earpiece in, they didn't have the earpiece in. That doesn't mean they decided to stick their middle fingers up at Mission Control and and, and say, no, we're we're on strike. But anyway, I think it's important. It's become such a big part of the story that I think you have to mention it, even to say, it's wrong. I think it's still important because otherwise if someone now goes away and says, oh, I want to find out more about that mission and they look it up and that's what they see. That's the first thing they see is when you type that in, which is a bunch of crap, but still that's something I feel very passionately about because I've met those guys. Ed is still with us. Yeah, I've met all three guys from that mission and they're awesome. And when I first met them, I was like, I don't believe none of that. Like, there's no way. And then I look further into it and I was like, they didn't do anything. Like, this is crazy. It bothers me that these guys, ancestors, you know, these guys, kids and grandkids and stuff, they have to go look that up on the internet. That's not fair. So, yeah, it's kind of become one of my life's passions to debunk that that entire myth because Skylab 4 is honestly my favorite crewed space mission of all time just because they did so freaking much and they really provided sort of a template for marathon missions, you know, and uh, to see them sort of get denigrated over time with this this myth, it's just, to me, it's just very, I can't imagine what it must be like to be one of those guys and have to read that, you know? 
So this is probably a good time just to remind everyone. We we had Bill Munch on uh, last year to talk about his new movie, The Artist and the Astronaut, which is about Jerry Carr and his wife, Pat Music. And it comes out on February the 8th. So it's available on for public consumption for February the 8th. So again, I will put that link in the show notes. You can pre-order it already, but it's coming out this week. So uh, make sure you check that out. Anyway, I suggested to Emily... That to mark the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of, of the end of the crew missions of Skylabs, that we should head to Washington, D.C. and go and check out the Smithsonian artifacts. And while we were there, we arranged some interviews. And uh, so they were getting the first part of one of these interviews. So we interviewed Dr. Teasel Harmony, the curator of the Apollo collection at the Smithsonian Institution. And part of that collection includes all of the Skylab artifacts that they have. So we've interviewed Teasel before, twice before, in fact, episode 29, where we talked about her book, Operation Moonglow, which is about the geopolitical nature of the Apollo program. And on episode 120, we discussed the legacy of Apollo, because that was around the time of the end. I think it was coming up to the end of uh, the 50th anniversaries of the, of, the, of the moon landings. So it was great to actually talk in person. It was our first in-person interview, 179 episodes, and we haven't done an in-person interview. So it was great not to be on Zoom. We, we actually owe, owe a huge thank you to Teasel as well. She gave us some wonderful tours of the galleries. Yes, thank you. Uh, that, that are now open up in the main Smithsonian Aerospace Museum. And she came out and met us at Advar Hazy in uh, the Advar Hazy Museum in Chantilly, Virginia. And she connected us with many people uh, and continues to, uh, has done over the time while we've been doing this podcast but while we were there as well. She even hosted a dinner party for us while we were in town and we got to meet some real space historian yes. legends, uh, which yeah. was pretty special, wasn't it? It was freaking awesome, man. I was like, I'm not worthy, man. This is this is badass. Yeah, there are people there who I, I've read all like all their stuff and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm sitting by them. This is crazy, but <laughs> it was wonderful. So yes, thank you so much, Teasel. Uh, we really appreciate everything. It was just marvelous. Yeah. So we, we have another episode coming up in a few weeks, which will feature the second half of this interview in which we discuss life as a curator. But, but here is our Skylab chat for your listening pleasure. Where space cracks on, this is Space and Pink. Welcome, Teasel, our first in-person interview. Thank you very much for joining us. Hopefully, I won't have too many technical problems. Slightly different setup for me, but I'm sure we'll be all right. So, obviously, you are the curator of the Apollo collection at the Smithsonian, which includes Skylab, right? It does. It does. And it makes sense because the hardware is so related. So, yes. So, officially the the curator of the Apollo collection, but I'm responsible for Skylab and Apollo Soyuz test project as well. Do you ever feel like Skylab gets a little bit left out? It, I hate to say it, but the Apollo program gets a lot of attention. So people will contact me with questions about artifacts. And for the most part, they are the Apollo artifacts and Apollo 11 in the same way that uh, many of the Apollo missions don't get as much attention as Apollo 11, you could say. Similarly, Skylab doesn't get quite as much attention as the Apollo program. Yeah. So even though the crude program ended nearly 50 years ago, Skylab stories are still being written. What do you think is the most significant Skylab artifact at the National Air and Space Museum? Maybe the biggest or perhaps the smallest? Well, when it comes to Skylab, I would say the the orbital workshop. Uh, it's 
it's an incredible artifact because it's it not only gives you a sense of what the orbital workshop that was flown for Skylab is like, but it it has such a great history in itself. And there was a lot of hope and optimism that it was going to be its own space station. You know, I think in the museum world, we think a lot about artifacts and how to categorize them. And we have mock-ups and we have engineering models. And a lot of our space artifacts are are real, but not many are flown or even designed to uh, fly. And this is a this is a case where it's an artifact that was designed to fly. And there's a lot of brainstorming of how it might be used and a lot of optimism in the, the late 1960s and early 70s about what our future in space was. And this artifact is tied to a lot of that dreaming about space and Changes took place in the 1970s. The trajectory of the U.S. space program was was somewhat altered uh, from what what people had hoped it might be in the 19 um, 1960s. And so it's a great artifact um, for so many different reasons. And I'll also add that when it's on exhibit, it's one of the artifacts that visitors can go inside. And we don't have many of those at the Air and Space Museum. And it's a spectacular artifact for that reason, for visitor engagement. I go in there all the time. Um, just to look up and look around and you really get a sense of what that space station was like. And so there are many great Skylab artifacts in the collection, but that one is so special. Yeah. Now, many forget that Skylab was the first dedicated crewed science platform. So talk us through some of the science artifacts that you have from Skylab and how do you use them to tell the story of Skylab? The collection of artifacts we have, um, if you categorize them, it's such a great way to think about what was happening on Skylab. What are the major themes? I mean, because you can break down the the groupings of artifacts in that way. And so you have all the artifacts that are related to the biomedical experiments, um, and they're a bit different than you would have had on the Apollo program. Some pretty straightforward stuff like blood pressure cuffs and stethoscopes and things like that, but it gives you a sense of how the Skylab program was really about studying the human body in space and the effects of long-duration spaceflight on the human body. So it's a wonderful collection of those artifacts. You also get a ton of tools, tools that you wouldn't have seen on other missions as well. So these people were really living in space and had tools with them to fix things and, and to work in space. So that living and working in space really comes through with the types of artifacts that we have, those, those huge variety of tools. And then there are other experiments as well. One of my favorite artifacts, I cannot not mention it, is uh, related to the um, the student experiments that were sent to space. So Anita, the spider, is such a great one. You'll, you'll be able to see it at the Udvarhazi Center. And that was a, you know, it was a great representation of how in Skylab they decided to engage science students, high school students across the country to create experiments that could be done in space. And this was, the, I believe, the first time that students really could propose scientific experiments that would be brought to space. A hugely successful program. Thousands of students submitted ideas, really good ideas. I think around a little over 20 were selected, and the spiderweb experiment was one of them. But we have those artifacts to help tell that story of student engagement in space. And so a lot of great science happened um, on the Skylab program in these sort of different categories. And then we also have artifacts related related to um, the solar experiments, Earth observation, the comet. We have the uh, some of the drawings the astronauts made when they were observing the comet. Yeah, so a nice uh, cross-section of activities represented in the artifacts from Skylab. Skylab has thankfully 
uh, undergone a resurgence in popularity over the last decade thanks to books, movies, and various blog posts. So any spoilers that you can tell us on how its artifacts will be displayed in the future? Sure. So with the uh, the Orbital Workshop, at least, I was just talking to the curator who's the head of that exhibit. It's um, Living in the Space Age. It'll open in, in 2026 um, at our National Mall Museum. I wish it was open now because I'd love to share it with you, but you'll have <laughs> to come back and, and check it out. But oh yeah, um, she was telling me that we always uh, try to take into consideration the different way visitors engage with the artifacts. And we love that people can go into Skylab. Um, it's a really special aspect of it. Uh, the orbital workshop, but not everyone can easily access it. And so to address that, we're creating a kiosk and a virtual tour so that uh, more people can get access to that information. And, and perhaps we'll do even more sort of these digitization efforts to really bring that information to a broader audience, whether it's within the museum setting or online, because um, we really love to use the, the new tools that are available to uh, to make these artifacts more accessible. Okay. Your book, Operation Moonglow, is very much about the geopolitical impact of the Apollo program. What were the geopolitical nuances of Skylab? That is a great question, and I would love to do more research on it. <laughs> I I know primarily some of the, the potential tensions uh, that were raised uh, with this concern that Skylab could crash <laughs> into... Um, uh, into Earth and, you know, uh, cause a big problem, a geopolitical event. And so um, by the late 1970s, it was clear that the, the orbit of Skylab was degrading more quickly than they had anticipated. And mm -hmm. um, as I'm sure you know, they expected to go back to Skylab um, again, that it wasn't it wasn't just going to be those three missions. And so there was hope that the shuttle could boost it up and that this timeline of everything would be faster. And um, but there was a lot of concern by the late 70s that this was going to be could be a major international incident if Skylab crashed into the wrong place on Earth. Um, and so uh, the State Department got involved in those discussions and the decision to deorbit Skylab uh, is within this larger context, very different than something like I talk about in Operation Moonglow, which is much more uh, sort of soft power and public relations focused. And I know that there were early discussions with Skylab B and the, the use of a the second Skylab orbital workshop to um, combine with the Soviet Union and try to do an um, international space station, an early version of the international space station, which is more akin to the Apollo-Soyuz test project and coming together and so pursuing space diplomacy through space stations in a sort of much earlier iteration of that than the international space station. Um, but I would love to know <laughs> all the sort of the soft power ways that uh, the Skylab program was promoted internationally. And that would be good research to do, or maybe someone's written on it. But I, I haven't yet um, explored the archives on that topic yet. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was throwing you in in the deep end there, knowing that your book isn't <laughs> about that aspect of the, the, of the, the program. But uh, I thought you might have an, have an idea. Um, we've had a question from Don Irwin. Now, he says, when talking to Dr. Mill Harmony, we ask if the Smithsonian will ever address the misleading article from Smithsonian Magazine titled Mutiny in Space, Why These Skylab's Astronauts Never Flew Again. I don't know if you're aware of the article. Uh, it said there's no NASA records transcripts that support what the article states, and there are plenty of interviews with those involved that dispel the myth. So is that something that you as a creator, do you have any say in what happens in Smithsonian Magazine? Is it a completely different entity, or is that just something you have to shake your head at yourself and be like, my hands are tied. Yeah. Well, so 
Smithsonian Magazine, they'll reach out to us for for interviews and some factual information, but um, we're not responsible for yeah. uh, the articles that they they write. And so we're a resource to the Smithsonian Magazine, I would say, more than more than anything else. You know, the, the word mutiny also gets used with Apollo 7, yeah. uh, right? And I, I think it's linked to this tendency to the appeal of drama, right? Yeah. And you're more likely to click on an article if it, it has a word like mutiny in the title as opposed to, you know, the astronauts uh, didn't have communication with mission control for a number of hours, right? That's, <laughs> that's not really as clickable. So um, I, you know, I don't know all the detailed ins and outs. Uh, I do know that they didn't have communication for about a day, uh, but they continued to do work in space. And it, it wasn't like a mutiny in that you would you would think of it as sort of an Earth-based example or, you know, the analog to mutiny on Earth. Um, it's a great word. I think it's, it's um, sort of a very evocative word. But when you look at what was actually happening on Skylab, and it seems less likely to be a, the right word to describe what was going on. Thank you for that very <laughs> diplomatic answer. In your time since you've been here, obviously there's been the, the refurbishment, so the orbital workshop isn't currently on display. But in in the time that you have been here, did you ever have any of the Skylab astronauts turn up and want to go in the workshop and explore it again and revisit it? Is that something you ever witnessed? Oh no, and I wish I wish I had. I did go into the orbital workshop with an ISS astronaut, which cool. was pretty cool because he was like. Look at this. He just kind of <laughs> really emphasizing how large and spacious it was and how nice it would be if the International Space Station was as spacious as Skylab. Um, so that was a really fun experience because we were looking up and yeah. um, getting a sense of the, the scale of it. Uh, but unfortunately, no, I've not met any of them, uh, which is too bad. But I've only been responsible for the Skylab collection for a handful of years now. Yeah. So. Others uh, who work at the museum might have had that experience. Do you have any opinions on the legacy of Skylab? Obviously, as the 50th anniversary is coming up to a conclusion, it's always nice to, to kind of have a bigger picture of what did it all mean? Was it worth it? What do we, what do we still get from it now? One of the sort of wonderful aspects of Skylab is it's becoming even more relevant. As we're focused on living and working on space long-term, as we're thinking about the Artemis program and what a sustained presence on the moon is going to look like, the lessons from Skylab are even more relevant um, or uh, applicable to something that we're planning for the future than maybe a handful of years ago. So I think that um, it's great that Skylab is is getting more attention and there's a lot to um, be said for the the, especially when it comes to concerns about um, habitability and um, how to to deal with some of the psychological aspects of spaceflight. I think that the Skylab crews definitely have something to say about that, but all the people involved in the planning of it really thought through those issues in a, in a very deep way. And there are going to be questions that arise as we're planning for sustained presence in space. And so uh, this is a great time to think back about on Skylab and and um, the lessons learned uh, and, you know, whether or not there should be another space shower. <laughs> I, think, I think it was true that wouldn't be good, but, you know, maybe on the moon we'd want a shower. Um, That's uh, funny. But, uh, you know, I, parts of Skylab that I really appreciate is, that, you know, they thought through how important it is to sit down and eat a meal and get that sense of, uh, normalcy or replicating our experience on Earth as much as possible to make sustained presence in space, these long duration space flights as 
as normal or as healthy as possible for the astronaut. And 50 years out, it's great to look back on that and learn those lessons and, and think about applying that today. Yeah, I think when I first went in the orbital workshop, the first thing I noticed was the, is it the hexagon rings thing that they oh, would yeah. put their feet in and in order to, to set themselves up to do their work and, and things like that. And I don't know if there was ever something before that. And I, I'm not sure what they use now, whether they use a similar thing, but it's, uh, it's, it's I think just restraints. It's just restraints, it? yeah. But it shows that way of thinking of, okay, we need to think about what's what's the best way of doing this. What is the best way of sitting down? And yeah, that's that's my thoughts on it anyway. I don't know if you have anything to add, Emily. I think to piggyback on what you've all said, it, it taught, I think, people on Earth years before the ISS and before we established a deep, a human deep space presence, whether it's NASA or commercially does that. Um, I think it taught practical applications in space as far as, you know, living and working in space. They figured out how to restrain themselves. They figured out how to do EVAs with very kind of, I wouldn't say rudimentary, but with planning for things that were not expected. You know, things that like, oh, God, we broke part of the space station off type of stuff that that was a big deal because those are things that, you know, as we go further out into the cosmos, I almost said the high frontier and I got bleep further. We go out <laughs> into the high frontier. You know, these things are going to happen. Things are going to break. People need to find sort of practical, I guess, solutions to issues in space that are going to happen. And that also extends to people as well, people issues, you know, workflow issues as well, because we have workflow issues on Earth. Who hasn't had a day where they've been like, I got so much crap to do. I can't. I got to put some of this to another day because I'm starting to get burned out. You make mistakes and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an issue that we experience here. And that's something that does have to be addressed in space. You don't want people working out, working burned out up there. And mm-hmm. that with the whole M-word story, that was the real <laughs> issue they were experiencing. They were getting burned out, you know, and you don't, nobody wants that. No. So especially if you're in a very foreign environment. So yeah, I think Skylab, in my estimation, very humble estimation, was a, a huge lesson in practical applications to living and, and working in, in space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Teasel, thank you very much for joining us once again. I think it's our third time on the podcast. <laughs> but you're our first in-person guest, so you'll always yes. have that. Oh, such an honor. Awesome. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us once again, and we'll speak to you soon. Do you ever forget that we're actually all traveling through space on a big spaceship? Me too. This is Space and Things. Okay, I think we can safely say that we have covered the Skylab 50th anniversary pretty comprehensively. Yes. And I really enjoyed that interview. It was great interviewing Teasel in person. I think we should do more in-person interviews personally. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I felt we were able to, to flow a lot nicer. Anyway, being at the Smithsonian, it's clear to see that they do really value Skylab. Obviously, it's... The, the main downtown museum, some of you may not notice, it's under refurbishment at the moment. So only th- three space galleries are open. But in the main hall, in one of the main halls, is Skylab B. We talked about that, the orbital workshop with Teasel. And the fact that that artifact is so prominently placed within the museum shows how much that they do value Skylab. But, Emily, I'm going to put it out to you. While we're talking about what we saw last week, what were your favorite Skylab artifacts that we saw last week? Oh, my God. Yeah, uh, I don't even know where to start. It was incredible. Uh, Two of the biggest highlights for me at Uvar Hazy were um, the Apollo telescope mount uh, from Skylab B. 
basically what happened in 1972, um, taking it way back, 52 years, Skylab B was canceled, basically because NASA was funneling most of its funds into the space shuttle. So the decision was basically, okay, we're going to get rid of the second Skylab space station. I have feelings about that decision. We won't get into it here. But what (laughs) happened was Skylab B went to the Smithsonian to become a museum piece. And the um, Apollo telescope mount had nine instruments in it. And what happened was they basically gave the nine instruments back to their principal investigators. Like, okay, here, you guys can use these for whatever purpose you want. Years later, one of the gentlemen at the Smithsonian we actually had dinner with, he contacted the principal investigators and was like, hey, are you still using these? Because we would like to put them into an exhibit. And they got six of the nine instruments back, which is actually pretty incredible given that Skylab is a fairly old program. It's amazing that they got anything back, really. So in Udvar-Hazy, there is the Apollo telescope mount, the casing, which is freaking enormous. It's hanging from the ceiling and it doesn't have solar panels, but if you pass by it, you should be able to tell what it is. And below it are the six of the nine instruments, basically in a like a housing as they would have been on orbit. And it's the first time I ever saw those in my life. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, if you're an astronomy nut, you want to you may want to see this because uh, Skylab really had a sophisticated for its time. It had a sophisticated suite of uh, astronomy instruments and solar observation instruments. And not only that, but it had a person sitting at the console controlling, you know, what they wanted to look at. You know, in space, you don't have the atmosphere of Earth. You don't have things that could impede your vision of the sun or certain um, stars or comets or anything like that. So it's really a cool artifact if you're into that kind of stuff. I I am. I'm kind of a dork, but I would suggest seeing it. It's just freaking huge as well. Like I was overwhelmed by the size of it because those of you who've met me, I'm not a big person, but I was like, God dang, that's enormous. Can we just paint a picture before we move on? For those people who have seen a a, a picture of Skylab or maybe a model of Skylab, have I got this right? This is the the kind of white thing that lives where the solar panels come together, right? Is that right? Or have I got that wrong? It's the white thing that has the windmill coming out of it. Yeah. Okay. It has its its own power source. That's how big it is. It's pretty central to the the whole concept of Skylab, isn't it? When you look at yes. any photo of Skylab, it's there right in the middle, slap bang, this massive white thing with four solar panels coming off of it. Yeah, it's one of Skylab's, I would say, most massive features. It makes it distinctive looking. And it was back in the day, it was going to be based on the lunar module and they were going to fly it up separately. Oh, wow. Yep, exactly. But eventually that was nixed and they just launched it together as one as one piece. It's the piece that has the windmill uh, solar panels. It had its it had its own um, power system, which is also notable because it had basically unlimited, um, except in the first few weeks, which we won't get into that when Skylab had issues. It really had unlimited power. You know, it wasn't limited by wattage, so they could do a hell of a lot with that thing. I mean, it was just it was really a big moment for uh, astronomy. I'm not sure we'll ever see a, a space observatory with a person quite like it quite yeah. like that ever again for for a few reasons because mm. nowadays things are a little more advanced you know they could probably send stuff up that could do similar things yeah. yeah that you know now we have different technologies but uh i still think it's incredible because it was one of its kind if you want to see it it's at udvarhazi and it's free you don't have to pay anything to go see it 
another yeah. cool artifact that's Skylab related and Dave will like this. Dave saw my reaction to seeing it for the first time was Anita, the Skylab 3 spider knot. And she is preserved. It, she's in a little uh, glass jar. She's preserved in formaldehyde. So if you want to see her, she is in Udvarhazi. And also, I think the um, drawer that they kept them in is also in Udvarhazi. I don't know if it's the exact drawer or it could be the exact drawer. I'm sure they, they may have brought it home. I'm not sure. Yeah. Also, the experiment housing that they kept her and uh, her partner, Arabella, in uh, during Skylab 3. And I think during Skylab 4, they observed them. They may have observed them as well. I, I need to look. I, I, I know one of them died on orbit. I'm not sure if it was Anita or, or Arabella. I'd have to go look. But one of the first women astronauts. <laughs> one of the first, That's one way looking at it. One of the first women in space, Anita. But seriously, it's cool to see that there because during that time when Skylab 3 was in space, there was a lot of press about, oh my God, they have spiders on board and they're going to weave a... It was, they got a lot of press. They kind of became celebrities. And it's kind of cool to see her like, hey, this is meet Anita. You know, it's kind of neat to see her preserve perfectly. You know, like, yep, that's what she... That's that's her. I just want to uh, pick, pick up on that one point you said about, about the museums being free. The, the Smithsonian Museums are free. For those people who are planning trips, one thing you have to be aware of is the parking. Yes. If you're driving out to, to Upper Hazy, there is a parking fee. It's because it is by the airport, and they don't want people just dropping their cars off and getting free parking. And whilst... The downtown doesn't have their own car park. All the parking around there is expensive. Yeah. So I, I, my biggest expense for the last week was parking. I'm not blaming the Smithsonian for that. That's just DC. I think I think in four days I did $150 just in parking fees. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is quite something. Yeah. Anyway, there was loads of great artifacts um, Skylab related. Uh, uh, you know me. I like the human element to, to these kind of things. What I like nearby in, in Ardvar Hazy, they had some... Uh, some ideas. Obviously, they were discussing about how do you keep people occupied on their downtime when they're in space. And they had the proposed Scrabble board that they were going to take up, which was probably one of the first travel Scrabbles, a magnetic travel board, which would have been a nightmare. I can't imagine trying to play Scrabble in zero gravity. But even better, they had had the idea of a dartboard. They had a Skylab dartboard, which obviously didn't fly, but... I would love to see some darts in space. I think that, I want to mention their Velcro darts. I don't know if someone's actually darts. done that. They're Velcro oh, yeah, darts. I'm aware of that, but yeah. it's still funny. They're not throwing knives that, at each other in space and stuff. That would be pretty wow. That'd be fun to watch as well. Axe throwing. Zero gravity axe throwing would be fun. Oh let's my let's God. do that. Let's arrange yeah. that. Yeah. Plus the, the logistical nightmare of putting Dr. Kerwin in space with a Scrabble <laughs> of any type would have been, yeah, he would have whipped on everybody and... Yeah, then there would have been a mutiny. So yeah, <laughs> but I, I like that. I like that they were they were trying to think with Skylab. They were trying to think of what do humans need to live in space, and it's not just about food, exercise. All those things are important. It's also about the mental side of things. How do we keep people's brains occupied? How keep, do we stop people getting bored? Um, which is important. How do we allow people to have be more hygienic? They try to shower. Yeah, you know, it's that, it's that kind of thing with Skylab that within the interview, both you and you and Teasel both said, you know, Skylab is about learning how to live in space. Yeah, and it's when you see artifacts like here's something they thought about to entertain themselves that, that you look back and you go, yeah, they really were trying to think about it, and they were trying to think of everything. And I like that. I like that they were 
they, they were trying to think of things. And it's things yeah. like that. It's artifacts like that, which I enjoy seeing in a museum because it just makes you see the bigger picture. Here's what could have happened as well. Here's, yeah. here's something else that they were thinking of. Didn't happen, but it's interesting that they still got that stuff. Yeah, there's the... The human factor in all of the it. The human factor. Yep. So, so, yeah, I think this concludes, perhaps for a couple of years, if we're still doing this in a couple of years, our Skylab 50th anniversary stuff. Until, uh, if we're still around in uh, 2029, uh, yeah. it'll be the 50th anniversary of it coming back down. There's potentially one other episode we can do, and I can think of the perfect guest to talk about it, and that's to discuss the plan that was being put in place to get the shuttle to raise Skylab. Yes. That could be an episode we do to bridge the gap between now and 2029. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were thinking of doing it and the crew is still alive. The crew who were supposed to do it are, were Hayes and Lausma. And they actually yeah, trained, so. they were actually training to do it. That feels like an episode. That feels like an episode of Space and Things, that if you ask me. That does feel like an episode. And, the, and the, the concept art is freaking amazing. I mean, it's really cool looking. and It's really a cool idea. So if you have signed up to our Patreon page, you will be able to watch the full interview with Teasel. Uh, we did record a video, although I forgot to turn it on for the first question. But uh, you still got the audio, obviously. Uh, but then then we come in in Technicolor, all in the same room. It's amazing. It's like like technology suddenly switches on. That's uh, up for you to see. So the bit that you haven't heard today from that interview, you can watch if you're one of our patrons. If not, you have to wait until we decide to put that up. But... Yes, if you're part of our Patreon, go over there and check that out. And if you want to find out more about the Smithsonian uh, or Teasel's work, then all of the links will be in our show notes, which you can find on our website, which is spaceandthingspodcast.com. Or you can find it by clicking in the link in the description of this podcast in your podcast provider. Please leave us a review or share our podcast with your space-loving friends. This is the Space and Things Podcast. Okay, so Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight this week? Or the last couple of weeks, really? The Webb Telescope, we, we saw quite a few telescopes at uh, Udvarhazi last week, including the Skylab one. But uh, nowadays we have the Webb Telescope. And um, according to the Webb uh, website, uh, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, webtelescope.org, uh, NASA's Webb recently, according, uh, this is a story from January 29th, NASA's Webb has recently imaged 19 spiral galaxies basically a bunch of new web images have arrived in near and mid infrared and it shows 19 spiral galaxies if you see these uh images it is just incredible i mean you can see the the structure of these galaxies and i doubt we've ever seen as clear of a view of these uh galaxies before i mean just amazing i don't think hubble is an also an amazing resource but i don't think there's ever been as um incredible of a view of these before uh here's a quote by janice lee who uh is a project scientist for strategic initiatives at the space telescope science institute stsi in baltimore uh she has said webb's new images are extraordinary they're mind-blowing even for researchers who studied these same galaxies for decades bubbles and filaments are resolved down to the smallest scales ever observed and tell a story about the star formation cycle it really drives, and I know we've said this before on this show, and, and a lot of astronomers say this all the time, but to me it boils down to, you know, the these space telescopes like Webb and before that the Hubble, you know, the Hubble still is operating. These telescopes really are time machines. I mean, they're looking back in time. And 
when you look at these images, you're just like that already that happened a very long time ago and we're just seeing it now. I mean, it's just it blows your mind. You know, I, I'm not an alien person. I don't want to I don't want <laughs> I'm not one of the people like I believe in aliens or anything like that. But, you know, you really look at these universes and you're like, there's entire different, you know, universes and solar systems out there. We are truly figuring all this out for the first time in, in our existence. It makes me really excited to see what, what we're going to figure out during the rest of my lifetime. I don't know how much longer I got on Earth. I'm not dying or anything, but, you know, even if I live to be 100, we're still going to be just keep discovering things about our universe and what is really out there. And I just can't wait to see this all unfold. So, again, the story is from webtelescope.org. I believe that's the uh, .org is nonprofit but I believe that's the web, sort of their website. Yeah, the website. <laughs> they should have just named it that. But um, website.org. <laughs> and also, if you if you like the web telescope as much as I do, there's a lot of other cool stuff on that website as well for you to look at. If you just like the pictures, I'm one of those people. I'm a picture person. I'm very visual. I like to see the photos because photos make sense to me. If you like that stuff, yeah, they it is chock full of photos uh, that web has imaged over the last couple almost two years go check it out so dave what's caught your eye this week well a few things so overnight on the 29th of january the california science center successfully lifted up the space shuttle endeavor into an upright position and attached it to an external fuel tank fuel tank and two solid rocket boosters Now, the shuttle is shrink-wrapped to try and stop it getting damaged in the move, but it was very cool to see the museum do this on on their live stream. It's been over 10 years since the shuttle was put into this configuration, and they're now going to build the rest of the new building around the full shuttle stack, which should open for public in 2026 at the earliest. The the Science Centre has done a great job of sharing this journey with us all, and I think a lot of people are rightfully excited about it. I was quite nervous. It hasn't been lifted up for so long. I was a bit concerned it might break in two or something like that, but it didn't. It all looks good. Meanwhile, on the moon, we had what we thought was another successful soft landing of a robotic craft, this time a Japanese spacecraft, but then it seemed that it might not have been a success. There seemed to be some trouble, but but then it turned out that it just landed upside down or, or something like that, and now JAXA, the Japanese space agency, are saying that it all seems to be working fine. So hopefully it's all good. This is their first moon mission. The uh, moon is popular right now. It's very popular. We, we need to do a moon episode. Anyway, talking of the moon, today, this is the second time I saw it, uh, I went to the Moonwalkers exi- um, show, I guess it's a show, at Lightroom in King's Cross in London. And I went with my mum today. Uh, hi, mum. And we had a great time. It's a 50-minute show that is just delightful. It's Tom Hanks narrated, and it talks about Artemis, but it, it basically is covering those 12 people that walked on the moon and um, what they did. And this is a huge room with screens on four sides and on the floor. They use the floor as well. And it's just fascinating. It's just amazing. It's amazing, all immersive experience. Thoroughly recommended. And it's been extended until June. It was supposed to be going to April 21st, but now it's been extended to June. So if, if you're planning a trip over to London, you've got a little bit longer now to potentially try and see this. It is worth going to. It's £25. Uh, book in advance, but it's it's really, really worth it. I loved it. I mean, I would love it, but it's even for people who aren't necessarily space people. I think they will love it as well. So that's good. Also, some sad news. 
Ingenuity. Oh, how have we? Lo- how much have we loved Ingenuity? Unfortunately, it has come to an end. Uh, yes. So February 25th, 2021, we had a, episode 26. We were talking about the fact that NASA's Perseverance rover landed. And then a few days later, it or maybe even that very day, it, it, it gave birth or <laughs> dropped off its little mate, this little helicopter uh, called Ingenuity. And it was expected to do up to five flights. It was just a little test to see if they could fly something in the Mars atmosphere. And it did 72 flights. And unfortunately, in its 72nd flight, one of its rotor blades got damaged. So it can't fly no more. So for the first helicopter ever on another planet, it's the highest altitude it reached was 79 feet. Uh, a total of 128 minutes in flight over the two year, two and a half, two and a bit years it's been it's been up there. Or nearly three years. Yeah, nearly wow. three years. So it's flown over 11 miles. Yeah. Which is really cool. That's really a lot for a, that's a lot for something that small. Absolutely. And for for context, it's it's about the size of I don't know, slightly bigger than a beach ball, I guess. It's not that big at all. It's really not very big at all. But yeah. the, the, I think again, being at Smithsonian, they have a couple of replicas and maybe some doubles of some of the Mars rovers that have existed. And those things are big. Perseverance yeah. is huge. It's the size of a car. Yeah, we we often forget that it's the size of a of a truck, pretty much, uh, and the fact that they they got that thing to land on Mars, and then this little helicopter popped out and and did its thing, having travelled all that way and delivered so much, it's really inspirational uh, what it's done, and it opens the door to so many incredible ideas of what could happen in future in terms of planetary exploration. So yeah, th- thank you, Ingenuity. We really appreciate what you did and all that team. Uh, what a team what what a great idea and great execution as well so uh, that's been a big thing over the last week that people have been talking about um and one other thing emily i'm pleased to say that people are really loving our beanies yes yeah the, uh, you know what i need to get one of them because i have experienced cold for the first time <laughs> <laughs> this past year, uh, I went to Canada, and it wasn't even that cold yet. And I, I've been in D.C. I, I just got back from D.C. late last night. Uh, I'm a Florida girl. I'm a sissy when it comes to cold weather. I cannot handle it. So I, I bought a really uh, smart NASA beanie when I was up in D.C. And I wore it like the whole time. Uh, Dave was there when I bought it. Don't be changing your your language all of a sudden. You used a word that I had never heard about, and that's what I want to bring up. What what were you calling it? A toque. Now this is a word I've never heard before. It's a beanie. Now, yeah, it's a toque. Well, yeah, I I, I think toque is more Canadian because I I think in the states they would probably call it a beanie. But since I got my first one in Canada, that's probably why you started I call calling it, them. Yeah, they because they were like, here's a toque. Here's a toque, eh? So I was like, oh, okay. So I've been, I'm trying to do my Canadian accent here. It was, it was brilliant. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> and try it, try it at Epcot next time you're there. Yeah, at the Canada Pavilion. I'm Canadian, eh? But um, no, but there they, they were like, here's your toque. So I was like, okay. So I had, that's what I called it. But it is, it's the same thing. It, it's still a beanie, but you can call it a toque as well. But well. Yeah, I like I like my. Don Owen posted a photo of his, and he called it a toque, and I was like, "Oh, this is catching on." And then Carla Gust, who is Canadian, 
she went, I'm so glad you called it a toque and not a beanie. So I, I feel like there's some kind of war to be had here. So uh, anyway, if you would like a toque or a beanie, um, or maybe I'll put yeah. it up twice. I'll put up a toque and the same product, but I'll just have it listed yeah, twice. Yeah, that's smart because um, you, uh, you, you would get more, maybe twice as many sales. That's a good idea. Yeah, but... Maybe the toque should be more expensive because it sounds fancier. Just yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the same more... product. But if if you see it on there, it may be a it may be more expensive just because it's called a toque rather yeah. than a beanie. We'll mark it up like five um... cents or something. <laughs> yeah, it, no, yeah. put the Canadian price down. The Canadian <laughs> put the Canadian price down. What, eighty dollars? Yeah, nine. This is ninety nine ninety nine. It's like yeah, yeah. it's seventeen ninety nine US, but one hundred and thirty Canadian or something. Like what? <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Anyway, if you would like, if you'd like a beanie or two, check out our website. We've got a whole load of new merchandise going up all the time at the moment. So please go and fill your boots or, or, or whatever you, whatever expression you want to use there. But yeah, that's what's caught my eye. Check out the show notes for links for what Emily and I have been talking about. This podcast supplies on the generosity of our members. To help out, you can sign up at patreon.com slash space and things. So that's it for this week. I don't know about you, Emily, but as I said earlier, I feel incredibly lucky right now to have had that trip that we've just had and to be able to do this podcast and have so many people give us their support is amazing. So thank you again to those who we met on our field trip uh, who did so much for us, especially Anne, who put us up for the week, and to David and Jenny for taking us out for dinner one night. All the people we met at the Smithsonian and NASA HQ, all of you were incredible. It really made me want to push even harder to make this podcast a success. And once again, I need to thank you, our listener today, uh, on deciding to press play on our podcast and listen to it. Maybe, maybe you're just a casual listener. Maybe it's your first episode you've ever listened to. Maybe you've subscribed on your podcast platform or followed us on social media. Maybe you've hit the share button or even donated to us or purchased a toque. Or maybe you've signed up to our Patreon. Or maybe you've done a combination of all of those things. It blows my mind that you've done anything. The fact that you're even here, thank you very, very much. Yes, mine too. But however, we are still a little bit short of our Patreon target. We said at show 150 that we want to reach 100 Patreon subscribers by show 200 or we'll stop making the podcast. Although experiences like we just had this last week are incredible. We have to make this podcast work uh, week by week. So if you can consider signing up, we'd really appreciate it. So please head over to patreon.com slash space and things to check it out. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meet. Thank you for listening. New episodes every Thursday. This has been the Space and Things Podcast. <laughs>